Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. If you've ever been curious about a liberal arts and sciences college and concerned about the return on investment at the same time, or just wondered what their advantages are compared to traditional large public or medium-sized schools, this is the show for you. Our first two segments are all about liberal arts colleges. For the first segment, I'll be chatting with Michael Yeager, who you'll see if you are actually watching this on screen instead of listening. He's newly to college coach, and he worked at St. Lawrence in New York State and Wheaton College in Massachusetts, both small liberal arts colleges, as an admission officer. I will then be following up with Alexander Gonzalez, one of our college finance experts, about the return on investment of liberal arts colleges. So he's going to be doing a little more of the number crunchy type of stuff with us. And then uh, we'll be following all that with an office hour segment for you seniors uh, regarding what to expect from your early applications and turning to your regular decision schools. But first, let's just say hello to Michael. Welcome, Michael. Hi. Thanks, Sally. Uh, Glad to be here. (laughs) Excited to talk about something that I've been really passionate about and been fortunate enough to have great opportunities working at, at small liberal arts campuses. And so definitely looking forward to today's conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, anybody who listens to this show regularly knows that I went to read. I'm a huge champion of liberal arts and sciences college uh, colleges. Um, so I'm more interested. I will certainly chime in on this discussion, but let's especially try and get your point of view. <laughs> so um, so tell me what you I mean, we discussed this right before. Now you went to Ithaca, which is more of a midsize school. Um, when you transitioned to working at a liberal arts college, what are some of the real advantages that you saw? Yeah, I mean, right away, you get to know a lot of people and a lot of decision makers. And I think that's really an awesome thing for a student to have on campus. I mean, within a couple of weeks of me starting my position at St. Lawrence, you know, I know the name of the person who's pouring my coffee in the morning. You know, I'm having, I'm playing basketball against the the Dean of one of the schools uh, at lunchtime. And so you just have access to people that are in critical, important decision-making roles. And so when you have something in your life that comes up, you know who to turn to, or you know who to turn to, and then they can turn to someone else and make that connection for you. There's just that that immediate network at a small liberal arts campus is something that really students can take advantage of uh, if they engage in the community. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I always thought was notable when I was a college student, um, my brother and sister both went to UC Berkeley, and I decided against it because for me personally, it was just too large. For my brother in particular, it worked very well. For my sister, less so. Um, and w- what was notable to me is like, I could just walk in to the financial aid office when I had a question about my loan. My sister would be on hold for hours. Of course, these days, everything can be automated. This is, or everything's over the internet. But like, just the fact that I could get that FaceTime. And not only that, I remember walking in once and the um, the um, assistant, the administrative assistant looked at me and said, yeah, your check's in. 
here's your, I just need your signature. I hadn't even gotten anything from her yet. You know what I mean? Like I hadn't even gotten a note, but she knew who I was and I knew to come in and she knew my name and I signed it and I was out of there in less than five minutes. And along the way, there was lots of smiling and how, how you doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think for student support services at liberal arts colleges, that's a big deal too. You know, when you have access to a writing center, or you're, you're struggling with a personal issue and you need access to counseling services. I mean, there are a lot of students, especially in their first year on a new environment that they're gonna have a lot of needs. And so being able to walk right in as opposed to setting up an appointment online, waiting you know, two weeks to get in front of someone, your issue may be done at that point. Um, and, you, and it may be moved to another level that's a little bit harder to deal with. Um, in my experience as an employee, I would go around and try to seek faculty to come and present at our open houses. And, you know, a lot of times it was easy. I would just walk through a building and some people would either hide from me because they knew I was working in the admission <laughs> office and I, and I had something for them. Uh, or, you know, they would come right out and say, Hey, Mike, what's going on? When's the next open house? You know, how can mm -hmm. I help? And so, um, again, that, that personal connection is, is just huge for students that are, that are going to be entering an entirely different environment. And I think mm -hmm. some of them think that, especially at the beginning of the process, that bigger is better, you know, that, that going to a campus with 40 or 50,000 people will be this amazing experience. Um, and I just, I don't know how people have the bandwidth to have that many friends. I mean, I, I'm at the <laughs> phase of my life where I have, you know, three or four friends and I'm overwhelmed. I can't imagine trying to, to build connections with that many people. And I think that's, that's the benefits of a, a smaller college where you can, you can build those interactions really quickly and you can build them in volume based on mm -hmm. what your what your interests are and what you're getting involved with in the campus community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, when I was a college student, um, he had, he was a transfer from UCLA. And when I asked him why he transferred, he said like, he said actually that it was actually counterintuitively harder to meet people, that he would have these great discussions with interesting people and then he'd never see them again. Whereas he and I got to know each other just like walking past each other, chatting. I, we started eating together in the lunchroom sometimes, you know, he was a friend of a friend. It was like, you know, he's like this, this, this didn't happen for me at the very large, very fine public institution that I was at. And he wanted that kind of more natural connection. Um, so I think that that is a real advantage. At the same time, I always like to emphasize to people that you don't actually know everyone. And I thought I knew everyone at my college, but when I was at graduation, um, I did not know the people sitting on either side of me. Like I literally didn't recognize them. And I was like, how is this possible? You know, but I just think, I don't know, they were physics or chemistry majors. And I knew some physics and chemistry majors, but like there, there was no other way for our paths to cross, I guess. And so these particular students, I just hadn't met, you know, and I, I was astounded by that. <laughs> Yeah. I think I think people think it's it's similar to high school where you're in that same community. And so, you know, it's going to be the same group your entire college experience. Well, mm -hmm. college is different. You have a new first year class coming in every year. And so even if you're at a campus that's as small as 2000, you're replacing a quarter of the population. You're getting 500, mm -hmm. you know, new and different, diverse people on your campus every single year. And so and that's mm -hmm. very different than high school. And I don't think a lot of times the students that are looking at a place that has, you know, so few students that they're thinking about the, the turnover and this is going to be a different environment every single mm -hmm. year, especially if they're if they're planning on taking advantage of one of the hallmarks of a liberal arts college, which is going abroad for a semester. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of small liberal arts places will talk about, you know, the benefits of having that global education and getting out and expanding your views and 
And that's something where you're going to be away building all new friendships in an entirely different and uncomfortable and amazing environment. And, uh, and that's something that small liberal arts colleges do really well too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's, let's talk too about some of the other things that small liberal arts and sciences colleges do well. Like, what do you see as the advantages of, um, you know, the smaller classes, for example? Yeah, smaller classes, accountability. I mean, I think back to when I was a 17-year-old uh, young man uh, developing good <laughs> habits. And so the nice thing about being in, at, a, at a classroom space where there's you know, 20, 30 kids in an intro course is faculty know if you're not there two classes in a row, you know, mm -hmm. so you may get an email, you may get a knock on the door. Um, whereas if you're in an auditorium style classroom with several hundred students, you, you may not have that personal attention. I mean, the classroom experience itself, once you're actually there and in the room, your voice is going to be able to be amplified. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's harder to, you know, to raise your hand and stand up in a class of, you know, 250 of your peers uh, that you, you know, you have not met yet. And, and engage in that type of environment. Whereas if you're only around 20 to 30 folks, you know, just taking that first step to engage in the classroom experience can be daunting for a lot of students, especially if you're an introvert and, and having that smaller, more safe environment where maybe you've already seen a few of these students in passing or one of them's living down the hall from you. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that can open up open up those academic doors a little bit more quickly for some students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, even I'm a pretty, um, pretty talkative person, but I was pretty shy in my first history classes that weren't just for first year students because of the other students who were in there. But really by my sophomore year, I was talking as much as anybody else. Um, and so I think that that sort of support to talk is really helpful. And I mean, college teacher, college professors aren't like, um, high school teachers, you know, they're not necessarily going to call on you. But one of the things that I did notice is that they would, um, you know, I think a lot of the best professors would sort of make sure that there was space for everyone to say something, you know, and, and I mean, I had a French class, this was obviously not an intro one that was only six students. So um, I had another history class, it was about the same size. So yes, the downside is there's no place to hide. I mean, I believe me when I say I did my homework for those classes, <laughs> like, you know, but um, which I actually thought, you know, was a good thing. Um, but you also just, I think, get a lot more out of it. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that that opportunity to engage with your classmates outside of the classroom a little bit easier too. Um, you know, there are, there are even some small liberal arts colleges that, that offer that classroom space that's one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, you can find the classes get down even smaller than your French class in some places. And so um, having that interaction is just, I think, critical to help students challenge themselves and, and find others that have different beliefs and have those important conversations that, that is really what college is all about outside of the classroom. Um, and I think you know, being in that small environment definitely helps facilitate that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really important point, right? Like on the one hand, um, some students have made the point that often smaller colleges might be less diverse. And I would say it depends on the small college. I worked at Whittier, which is actually, um, I think, you know, the student of color population is over 50% at this point. I mean, whites are still, white students are still the largest population of the subgroups, but 
you know, so the, so you can get diversity at a smaller college. Um, but one of the things that I think is really interesting is that if you go to a larger school, you might not have a, be having these intense conversations with people who really disagree with you. Um, you know, so you bring up a really, really good point there, like at a small college, um, there is an expectation that you were participate in class and maybe find out how much you do disagree with your peers or agree with them. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a big part of the experience. I mean, for college, you know, a lot of the learning is going to happen outside of the classroom, um, just by the nature and by design. I mean, you're only going to be in classroom instruction for, you know, uh, three or four hours a day, and then you have all this other space to fill. And and how are you planning on doing that? And obviously, at a at a smaller campus community and a smallest camp smaller campus environment you're going to be introduced to a lot of different things pretty early on uh, because at those smaller environments, you need people to be engaged and do different things. I remember, um, you know, when I worked at Wheaton, there was a student who was a talented unicyclist. And once people found out about that, it was like, okay, well, now we need this, we need this student for the halftime show of the basketball game. So let's, <laughs> let's get with the dance team and let's choreograph something. Uh, and then it was the theater department that needed, you know, to add this student to the shows. And so I think those types of connections, once someone knows you have that skill set at a small environment, they're going to look to help you grow and develop in ways that are, are going to be helpful for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had um, at Reed, the math department, for some reason, had all these very talented jugglers. I don't, to this day, have no idea what the connection was, but for some reason, all the jugglers were in the math department, or most of them were anyway. And yeah, once, at first, they were just juggling on their own, but once people realized it, like, you know, we asked them to perform on the student union steps at a regular basis, and so these very shy math majors who fit the stereotype of what you might think a math teacher, a math, excuse me, student might be like, like we're out there in front of crowds and we were cheering for them and it, um, and they were talented enough actually that when we brought like entertainment, we like would never bring jugglers because when we did, they were never as good as our actual students. Um, which I thought, you know, like they'd get discouraged because we wouldn't cheer because we'd be like, yeah, we've seen that before. Like Joe in the math department does a better job than uh, the, <laughs> at that than you do. So um, I, I think that, you know, that also bleeds into the curriculum when you talk about the interdisciplinary opportunities that students have. And so at, at all the campuses I worked at, you know, we had artists working with computer scientists on different projects. And so the opportunity for research was just so vast and you could you could make those connections cross discipline really easily uh, because it was one conversation with a faculty member that you could roll over to their office and say, Hey, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I was studying this. And I, I think my, you know, what I've been studying in computer science applies to studio art. And this is how I want to build that bridge. This is how I want to take the next step in terms of my research. Um, and having that access is, is really helpful in terms of building a student's overall understanding of interdisciplinary work and how it, how it helps them develop as a professional. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I worked at, um, I also worked at Whittier College and, you know, um, you know, I had students doing like film and English combined majors there, things like that. And it was the same thing where it wasn't an established department, but because it was such a small college, it was really easy, you know, to put things together. And I certainly saw a lot of that at, at Reed as well, like just that sort of ability when you're having face-to-face -face conversations with people, I think they tend to be kind of more flexible. They also know you and they know your level of seriousness. And I think that's a real advantage as well. Another thing that I wanted to touch on too, is I feel like opportunities to do um, 
research is really high at a small liberal arts and sciences college. So not only interdisciplinary work academically, but like um, the opportunity to do research as an undergraduate just strikes me as higher at liberal arts and sciences colleges than most any other schools. Um, and that seems counterintuitive to people because they're like, well, there's not as much research going on, but I always remind them, yes, UC Berkeley has amazing research going on, but mostly it's graduate students. There are exceptions to that. I was wondering what your observations on that were. Yeah, I think, you know, at a small liberal arts college, the likelihood that you're going to be taught by faculty is high, especially if they don't have graduate students mm -hmm. on campus. I mean, if it's a traditional liberal arts place, faculty are going to be the ones that teach. They're going to be the ones that are interacting with you and working with you as a student. Um, you know, you may have some TAs for some courses, but uh, but for the most part, faculty are going to be teaching you. And so they know who the talented students are and they know who they want to tab to, to join, uh, to have them come with them for research projects, or they have some availability that opens up when students come to them and present them with an idea or a project. And so, um, you know, being able to stand out is a, is a lot easier in that smaller environment in terms of what's available in research. You know, at St. Lawrence and at Wheaton, there were a lot of students that were applying for, you know, Fulbrights and Trumans and Watsons and Rhodes, super impressive scholarships, and a lot of students that received those. And, and you know, percentage base, I'm sure they, they stand up really well against some of these other bigger research institutions, um, and they still have the academic support in place to be able to do that. And so if a student does have some of those aspirations, I think that's something that, uh, that a lot of liberal arts colleges will be able to promote and talk mm -hmm. about. Yeah, I think Williams College might be number one in terms of sort of percentage. I could be wrong about that, but Reed, Reed is fairly high in that as well. But we, to be blunt, uh, Reed suffers because of the lack of undergraduate sports. I mean, there is some sports, but apparently Rose like athletes. So um, Reedies do really well in Fulbrights and stuff like that too, though. And actually Whittier had four Rhodes Scholars by the time I was there. So I think, yeah, even smaller colleges like Whittier, where, you know, they're really admitting a majority of the students who apply. I think what they do with those students is really, really remarkable. And I think a lot of that is the access to faculty. Um, one thing I always like to throw this out there and I'll just be transparent that again, it's because I went to read and really read is really high on this list. If you look at the National Science Foundation's um, list of the baccalaureate origins of PhDs. So in other words, if you parents have a student who wants to maybe get a PhD in a science in science or engineering, you might be surprised to know that small liberal arts colleges actually outrank the Ivies and the larger schools, if you look at it by percentage, by sheer number, it's UC Berkeley, it's Cornell, it's University of Michigan, it's University of Illinois, et cetera. But if you look at it by percentage of the student population, after um, there's Harvey Mudd, Caltech, MIT, and then it's Reed, and then there are other institutions like Swarthmore, Caltech, Bryn Mawr, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I bring this up because I can just imagine someone listening to this going, well, that's all well and good, but how do they actually know that it's better than these larger schools? And, um, you know, we have some actually pretty good data, I think, to, to back that up. So um, is there anything else that you would want to emphasize? I mean, I think that we should talk, I mean, I'll be talking about some of this with Alex in my next one too, but 
Um, what are some of the benefits beyond access to faculty and them helping you get access to like research and things? I think it's really notable the skills that you develop being in that smaller classroom. So what are some of those skills that you would highlight? Yeah, I think with a more structured curriculum, which a lot of these schools will have, um, you know, you do have a little bit more balance. So being able to still pursue and acquire language skills, super critical to employers, you know, being able uh, to, to be able to have that balance in terms of the arts and the sciences, even if you're going on to, to pursue technical careers in something like engineering, or if you're looking into business programs, we all know that being more broadly educated, uh, being able to have conversations with diverse groups of people, having soft skills are mm -hmm. huge. And not, not just in terms of getting in the door as a potential employee, but also your development and growth over time. And so again, the, the interdisciplinary approach and that, that defined curriculum that yes, students are gonna take courses in some different subject areas to build that base. Um, that's, I think, something that that has always been marketable to employers uh, and will continue to do so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, good communication. I don't care if you're doing something completely math focused. If you're not a good communicator, you know, you you might still be able to get that first job, but you're not going to continue to be promoted. Um, I thought that the being forced to defend my point of view in these small classrooms that use kind of the Socratic method was so valuable for me in every workplace going down, you know, in the rest of my career. So that's just the like one example that really comes to mind for me. Yeah, and you so. see that you see that if you look at alumni giving, you know, percentage of students who are donating back to a school, you see a lot of liberal arts colleges rank particularly high when it comes to percentage of alumni who are still engaged in the community because their affiliation is with the school, not with not with a subset of the school because it's so big that it had to be broken up. So, you know, when you attend a school that only has 2000, that's a shared experience that everyone mm -hmm. has, you know, they're all eating at the same places and, and going to the same events. And so, so it's more of a shared experience. And I think that's where a lot of those smaller places do do better in terms of percentage of alumni giving as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think, um, I think that covers it for now, but um, thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hopefully you'll invite me back again sometime. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We will. All right. So um, we'll be taking a short break, but when we return, I'll be talking with Alexander Gonzalez about the return on investment for liberal arts colleges. Thanks, Michael. Uh, thanks. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more.
You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome, Alex. How are you today? Great. How are Thank you? Good. <laughs> Thank you so much for um, for joining us. We've had a nice conversation already with Michael Yeager about um, about liberal arts colleges. And with you, I'm hoping you can certainly talk about your own experience and observations. But in general, I want to really focus on return on investment, not just kind of what's cool about it, like some of the positives in general. But I know that parents, when they hear about liberal arts colleges, they foresee unemployment after graduation <laughs> like that yeah, is what yeah. or they foresee you know um like do you want fries with that that is their picture it wasn't my experience at any moment upon graduation mm-hmm. but the fact that i'm trying to represent my own experience to them they're like well you got lucky or you know so um so really really interested in kind of finding out like some of the things like, obviously, ultimately, I want to reassure them, liberal arts colleges are not for everyone, but they definitely are for a lot of students. And I want to reassure that there are jobs afterwards. So, um, you know, what should parents and students maybe be looking out for? Like, you know, what can affect your return on investment um, in general so they can think about this in concrete ways and not just that, like, my daughter might graduate with English. Like, let's try and be a little bit more concrete about it. Yeah, yeah. And I echo that sentiment because when I am filling out uh, or helping families like navigate the paying for college, filing, you know, financial aid forms, um, reviewing award letters later on and looking at those scholarship dollars. Yeah, the the what if or how is this going to pay back in the future um, versus, you know, yeah, the meaning of life or, um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what are, what are some kind of factors about return on investment that we need to be mindful of? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think cost is one of them, mm-hmm. right? So cost of college, maybe not the bigger price right now. Um, but as we incorporate them into our college, uh, liberal arts colleges into our college list, um, that we're mindful of that because we don't know right now exactly what the cost of attendance will be look, look like, what our out-of-pocket costs look like. Mm-hmm. So definitely important to make sure that we're filing financial aid or aware of the scholarship programs that are at the college. Mm-hmm. And then also have that budget as well, right? Having, um, because a, like a technical college or an institute or kind of one of those kind of more, uh, or a business college, they could still be products of the kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so cost, financial aid, savings, time is a little bit like looking at what time is, Mm -hmm. um, and, and economic conditions. And then your major kind of, where do we look at? So, um, those are kind of all factors that we need to consider when we're thinking about those future choices of, you know, if we're going to go into uh, a sociology major, or ge- geography major, um, or an English lit major. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And that would be the case at any expensive college. So, so that's one of the things I want to highlight, you know, like an English degree. Uh, it, it's clear, it's true that some of the majors at liberal arts colleges, I was a history major. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but 
it's it's would have been the same if I'd gone to NYU, right? In terms of like it's still the same major. So I was like to remind Definitely. people it's, of that, you know. Yeah, like, it's not <laughs> like something out there that you're right. not that you're not gonna still have these same questions and conversations with. Right, right. But the difference, I think, at a small liberal arts college is that they give you a lot more attention and sort of everybody's in your same boat, I think. Like one of the things that struck me, and I may be leapfrogging over some of the points that you wanted to make, but um, I had a student who went to a very well-known Catholic university, excellent school, I think highly of it, but Initially, when he went in, he thought he wanted science. After a bit, he decided he wanted business. He wanted to work on Wall Street and um, he couldn't get into the business program, which was fine. He thought, I don't I can study economics. I like social science. You know, it's totally fine, too. But then um, he they wouldn't help him with internships because he wasn't in the business program. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is really like I was surprised at this. And I can promise you that that wouldn't happen at a small liberal arts and sciences program. Anyone who needed help with an internship who had the proper coursework, which frankly, calculus and intro to econ is enough, should be. Um, So he had to basically get his own um, internship, which he was able to do. And, you know, he's doing great. Um, and he certainly enjoyed his college experience, but I thought that would not have happened at a smaller college. They just don't draw those visions. Yeah, yeah. And that's that sounds like a unique thing because I also worked at a, um, well, a s- small college, Catholic institution, very similar, right. had, had their business school, had their engineering. But I also found that that kind of also created an environment that there was an expectation of professionalism. Mm-hmm. Or that idea that uh, an English major is going to do an internship, or a geography major is going to do some um, some research, or have or be a little bit more technical um, in their studies. Mm-hmm. So that 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 really influenced the, I think, the value of the education. So beyond the kind of the coursework, the theory that you're looking at, but more of the structure of your tuition and fees. So um, whether you're in an internship or you have a relationship with your professor that uh, can be that letter of recommendation to that internship or that opportunity um, or that summer job um, and, and, and really kind of building um, and exploring different industries within your major. Mm-hmm. Um, I think oftentimes families um, and students think, well, if I'm going to be a history major, I have to be a historian, mm-hmm. right? That's the job. They're thinking of it in that kind of business school mindset is that I'm in business and then I work in business. Well, you can still work in business. You can still work in different industries. Mm-hmm. Um, think of companies as collaborative institutions. And so they need a lot of different types of mindset, people, different skills, and, and so you can be very intentional at a smaller Blur Arts College of kind of what, and have the ability to explore, but also have that mindset of kind of, what am I going to do next? And I always mm-hmm. tell families uh, and um, students that are going into those types of majors where, you know, I'm going to be a sociologist. Well, that's great, but there's only like, I, I did, 
I went on um, career informational systems mm -hmm. and I was like, what's the projection? The projection was like, uh, maybe like two a year that, that <laughs> somebody's going to be like a sociologist. But um, if you look at kind of the different industries that they could go, you could find yourself in would be um, finance, business, insurance, research and development, software, telecommunications, like all these skills because you're taking complex social structures and then defining them with methodology and research and statistics and those things, all things that businesses kind of want to, to utilize as strategies um, mm -hmm. in their business and, and communication. Um, I was a sociology ethnic studies major. I remember looking at, um, you know, having to write those, you know, 10 page papers right off the bat and then, you know, beyond and beyond and had to like really sit down and, and, and my writing grew and the strategies of how to kind of organize thoughts and convince folks of, um, and create buy-in management skills, all those things, uh, um, were, were kind of a part of your success for that, um, for that return on the investment. Mm -hmm. So I think, oh, I just wanted to say, so I think you bring up an interesting point too, which is that people think all liberal arts colleges are maybe the same and there's very different ones. Like I went to read, there was not a hint of business. Um, honestly, like the highest percentage of Reed graduates when I was there went into education. At most schools, it's business. So it was kind of understandable that it was like not a place that thought about business. Although I think for students who were very business oriented, um, you know, maybe they felt like they were certainly able to go into business and a lot of people still did, but there was more emphasis on maybe getting that MBA. But mm -hmm. I like what you bring up here because you're bringing up that there are also small liberal arts and sciences colleges that have this business component. I mean, Swarthmore also has engineering. So it's a small college, um, but it actually, and it's going to have that emphasis on the broad skills that the liberal arts and sciences give you. Um, but because it's smaller, you're also not going to be siloed away, right? Like because you're yeah. in business, because you have a business program at this small college, that is going to influence other parts of the college. I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, yeah. So you you kind of flex and utilize the resources that you have in hand, just like you're mimicking what you're going to do in the future is you're going to leverage those industries. Um, so pulled some data, I know, you know, pulled mm -hmm. some data, some structure, you know, so yeah, like, yeah. what are some, what are some, um, there's a lot of great articles out there. Washington mm -hmm. Post, uh, Georgetown has a great um, um, article. Uh, Edmit has a, has a calculator to look at your, mm -hmm. um, your return on investment. But, but I pulled out some kind of key things to remember in mm -hmm. this is that, that liberal arts degrees or colleges, so the return on investment there is going to be a long-term investment, right? right? So, so your, your starting wage out of college is going to be reasonable, but it, it's not going to be that flashy business or, or, or um, engineering or computer science mm -hmm. wage. However, the growth and your flexibility moving forward is you end up catching up. So you kind of the median to the mm -hmm. to the kind of final stretch, you're going to catch up, and you're going to you're going to um, um, you're going to be level or or very near level with with that. Um, and the couple of reasons, 
so so you can look at statistics and statistics are going to show you kind of averages but what i want kind of folks to kind of come away with is what can we do to get there what are the mm-hmm. kind of those highlights of those those pieces and and one of it is so the flexibility of industry so we talked a little bit about that is that one degree can kind of multi create these branches of of places to look for and also in times of dis, uh, uh, of um um, economic downturn is that you can pivot. So mm-hmm. you have the ability to pivot because you have this rich environment to connect dots, to be fluid, uh, to pull information and move forward, um, and, and, and be flexible. So you're, mm-hmm. you're in your, your unemployment rate is, is quicker. You might be unemployed, but you have the ability to jump back and pivot, kind of go from there. Mm-hmm. Problem solving skills, wide range of studies. So you have the ability to pull people in um and then also just kind of have that kind of strong commitment uh so what was some other things um so one was looking at so being mindful of looking at graduation rates so you could look at a college and look at their graduation rates and you can say that but also if you have a college that you know may be affordable but might not necessarily um kind of have the highest graduation rate than college B or college college C. Mm-hmm. You can create that. What are those things that put you in a good position? So biggest factor in, in retention rate is that how, you, how you're successful in your first freshman to sophomore year. Mm-hmm. That is a key thing. So what do you need, what, what helps students? Meeting with professors, um, kind of all those selling points of a liberal arts college, meeting with professors, having a, a small knit community mm-hmm. uh, um, focused on academics, you know, all those good things kind of really create those environments for your success moving forward. And um, if you're first gen, this was one thing, if you're mm-hmm. first, if you look at the data, if you're first gen kind of like first gen students are kind of in there, you know, can, can be lost a little bit, mm-hmm. get involved with the program, trio, EOP programs, advising programs, uh, your internships, uh, have a job on campus, all those things create and breed success to, to, to really uh, mm-hmm. create that return on investment by mimicking those success points. Right. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I want to point out, too, because you say that this is a long term investment. So a figure that has always stuck with me is that 10 years out or it might be 20. I can't remember. Um, um, math majors are making more than business majors. So right upon graduation, it's definitely business majors, but then over time, the math majors absolutely catch up and then exceed. So on average, yes, engineers make more, for example, than history majors, but the top level of history majors are making more than the bottom level of engineers. So you know, if you think you're gonna enjoy engineering, you'll probably do well at it, but if you hate math and science, that's probably not the right call for you. And you might actually do better as a history major is sort of like, you know, what I, one of the ways that I kind of encourage parents to think about it, because they seem to get very panicked when they think about this stuff. But I also, I do like your approach. Like, how do you make a liberal arts and sciences college work for you? Mm -hmm. And there absolutely are ways to do it. It seems to me that it's more about the path is not as clear as it is if you're an accountant, like you kind of know what yeah. the path is. If you're a history major or a sociology major, you have to figure out the path, but also part of the reason is because that path is so broad. 
Yeah. And there are so many opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we have about a minute left, but any, any last thing that you would really want to emphasize or resources that you would want to mention? Yeah, I, I think um, resources wise, Advent was great. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of those colleges. Also, as you're making those college decisions, be mindful of borrowing as well. You know, the statistics as well. You know, we, we talked a little bit about college cost in that beginning, you know, borrowing for success, you know, being mindful of what your price points are. My golden rule is that uh, your entry level job or your kind of your industry and first job should be about, could be less than or equal to uh, what you're borrowing over the four years. So, mm -hmm. you know, attending a, a school with a great ranking, but if you're borrowing more than you can afford, then your return, you're kind of putting yourself kind of behind the curve in your return on an investment. So just be mindful of those when you're making those decisions. And if you're looking for colleges, you're looking and comparing co colleges and you're creating a, a balance list. So we mm -hmm. always talk about um, so that you can make those choices in the, in the future. Right, right. And again, those guidelines for borrowing are just as true for large schools as they are for small. So oh, let's, yeah. you know, yeah. like, and uh, the other thing I like to throw out is that some of the well-off small liberal arts and sciences college actually can give very good aid. So, oh, yeah. so definitely apply to those publics, but apply to the private schools too. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Alex. Yeah, thank you. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome, Tova. So glad to have you here with us today. Hi, Sally. <laughs> Hi. Um, all right. So we, this show, we're taping it ahead of time, but this show is going to be um, going live on um, October 28th. And so I am very hopeful that all the students will have submitted their 
early applications by then, those with November one deadlines. No one Um, will wait till October 31st if they're loyal listeners. No, no, exactly. They will be very organized and they will not wait until 1145 Mm -mm. on November one. Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) we're really hoping that they have everything in, which is what I've told my personal students they have to do. Um, But anyway, so we want to kind of give them advice, give parents and students advice on what they'll do now. Like, what are they going to do? What to do? at this point. So what kinds of things do you advise your students? Like they hit the submit button on the earlies, everything's in, they've double checked and they kind of just want to go collapse and find out what happens with their early schools. Right. Um, So what do you, what do you say to them when they want to do that? Well, if they've done a good job and actually have hit submit on October 28th, 29th, (laughs) I think they've absolutely earned that weekend to exhale Mm -hmm. to go be a kid again and go out and celebrate Halloween and go trick-or-treating and not give admissions another thought for the entire weekend. They they get the weekend, if not a whole week off. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then it might be time to start looking ahead to some of their regular decision schools, assuming Mm -hmm. they haven't applied everywhere they're going to be applying. Um, The biggest mistake I see students making is saying, oh, well, let me wait and see what decisions are. And uh, then if I need to apply anywhere else, I'll apply then because surely, Sally, I'll have all the time in the world uh, between when I hear back before regular decision applications mm-hmm. are due. That's that's not the case. No, you won't. You'll have two weeks. <laughs> at <laughs> Basically. Most, at best. Yeah, at, at best, best yeah. at best. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what's um, and the other thing, too, I mean, on the one hand, I'm highly sympathetic to giving students like a week off, but I have multiple students applying to the University of California schools. Yeah. And that deadline is uh, November 30th. Mm-hmm. And they have four essays that they have to write. Not yes. one, not two, but four. four. Personal insight questions. Sally. Exactly. Exactly. So in some cases, I'm very sorry to tell you this, students, mm-hmm. you can't take a break. Yeah. You have to get going on it. Um, so that is one of the things that I emphasize. And then what about like, like, let's say we're talking to a student who has applied to like Stanford or Harvard or one of these really highly selective institutions. How do you kind of recommend that they emotionally uh, prepare themselves? Well, I'd say the weatherman is calling for a 95% chance for rain. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) We might hope for sun. We might uh, get excited for sun, but we have to plan for rain when there's a 95% chance for rain. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't mean we're doom and gloom about it, but we pack an umbrella. We Mm -hmm. maybe wear clothes that won't get ruined in the rain Mm -hmm. and you plan for rain. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if it rains, listen, you might be bombed and you could be disappointed. Sure. We all wanted sun, but you knew there was a a very high likelihood that it was going to rain. So sure, you can be disappointed, but you're not going to be shocked and you can't then be devastated because Mm -hmm. that was what you were expecting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd say there are three possible outcomes in most of these early rounds that that we can have, that we can expect. And in those highly selective ones, we're, we're planning for the deny. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the, that's what you statistically have to expect to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're denied, by the way, that's your decision for the year. There's no reapplying come regular. I always want to clarify mm-hmm. that. 
Um, you could be admitted, which would be very exciting. There's always that possibility. And uh, then we can all jump up and down with you immediately let that school know, woohoo, I'm accepting, here's my mm -hmm. deposit. And then there's also that confusing middle ground, which I don't know if you want to spend a minute or two talking about, you could be deferred, mm -hmm. where the school is essentially saying, hey, we're not quite ready to make a decision, or at least not a final decision on your application. We want more information. Maybe we want to see more of your senior year grades. Mm -hmm. Maybe we want to see what the rest of the applicant pool looks like we're going to defer your decision down to the regular pool. We'll pick your application back up, probably not till end of January, February or so. And then we'll give you a decision with everyone else at the end of the cycle in, you know, end of March or so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The couple of things I like to emphasize too, if you've applied early decision, and you were deferred, your chances of going getting in are actually quite low at that point. I think it's pretty important to emphasize that it doesn't mean it's zero, but at these highly like, and I bring that up because, and I'm going to call them out because Harvard doesn't know who's working with me right now. But when I was a <laughs> high school counselor, like, um, I used to get really ticked off at Harvard because they just deferred everybody like students that I knew were never getting in. Right. They were never getting in. These were B students. These were students with low test scores back or, you know, low for Harvard, right? Not low, actually, but low for right. Harvard. Um, and Harvard was deferring them. So these students held out hope. So as much as it's painful for the student, I want to thank Stanford in this moment, because if you apply early and you're not getting in down the road, they are going to deny you. And that is painful. And I have... I mourn that moment with my students, but then they are able to move on yeah. Yeah. to think about their other students and, and their other options, what their options might be down the road. And I really like, that's kind of one of the things that I want to emphasize um, with your early, like try and do that earlier. If you're applying to schools like Harvard and Stanford, like you got your application in, you gave it your very best shot. And now emotionally you are moving on because it is Seattle and you need an umbrella. Like <laughs> if we're going to take this rain metaphor to the very end, you need to bring that umbrella. Yes, um, and that umbrella is all those other applications and doing a good job on those. Yeah. Uh, I like that idea of the giving the harsher decision earlier than sort of dragging or stringing the student on. We had a lot of conversations in the committees I was in about ripping the bandaid. If we knew mm -hmm what that decision was going to be. But I, you know, I don't want to completely remove all hope, but there were a lot of times we would defer a student because we, we really just weren't sure. Mm -hmm. It is saying to the student, Hey, listen, you're, you're not our first choice. You need to make the first cut. Right. We can acknowledge that, but we really very well might want to admit you or well, we would absolutely cut you loose at this point now. Right. So, as long as oh. schools are doing that, like, yeah. like I, I actually, I'll, I'll, I'll say like Georgetown, for example, they defer a lot of students. They don't mm -hmm. over admit early, but you know what? I've had students actually get in who were deferred. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and in like pretty solid numbers, you know, it wasn't like the very occasional thing. It was like a Fair. real option. So I do want to also say that, yes, there are schools that, as long as you're denying some students, I'm mm -hmm. only really trying to call out the students that were really just kind of habitually deferred absolutely everyone <laughs> because that's yeah. not good for the students. Uh -uh. Yeah. So, um, but either way, uh, my recommendation is emotionally, you want to move on 
And you want to start working on those regular decision applications. Yeah. I think it's probably also a good time to take stock of your likelihood overall of where you've applied. Do you have a good balance? Are you, uh, hopefully you were again, a loyal listener and you took our advice and you applied somewhere. (laughs) You're pretty darn confident you're getting in. So you're getting some Mm -hmm. good news back in late December, early January. But if you take a look at where you hit submit and you realize there's a real possibility, none of these are going to be yeses. I think that your next school that you prioritize on your list is one that you know will be a yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, you know, hey, maybe even one that offers some sort of rolling decision so that as you get maybe some bad news, you can get some good news along with it. Mm -hmm. But just double checking to make sure your list is balanced before you get too late into the process is probably a good call for one of your next steps after hitting submit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Don't just apply then to your reach schools, like prioritize those mid-range and those safety schools too. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't just prioritize the schools with a below a 5% admit rate or or even below a 15 or 20 or 25% admit rate. Those schools with 50% admit rates are excellent institutions as are often those schools with 75% admit yep. rates, you yep. know? So, yep. um, well, any, any last kind of words of wisdom? We have another minute or so. Uh, anytime you hit submit, usually within what, 24 hours or so, you're going to get some sort of confirmation of receipt. Here's how you can track your application. That is a wonderful time to take that information and file it. Whatever mm-hmm. organizational system you were using to keep yourself on task and on track, add a column to that chart and say, here's my login info, here's my password, here's how I will track my application so I can follow along and make sure I don't lose that information. It's also always a good time to thank your recommenders. If you haven't already, anyone who helped yes. you get to that submit button, uh, now's a good time to remember to say, hey, did I do this all by myself or did someone help me get here? Maybe, yeah. maybe help them. Yeah. You know what I always recommend students do actually is once they submit the application, yes, send out an email, but don't say, please send in my letter of recommendation because that's kind of annoying as someone who used to get those. (laughs) I was annoyed. I was like, oh, because I've just been sitting here eating bonbons, you know, like, but, but when a student said, Hey, Ms. Ganga, I just want to let you know that I submitted my application. Thanks Mm -hmm. so much for all your help. I was like, oh, this now puts this yeah. student at a priority for getting the recommendation in. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, so that's a nice way to do it. That's what I that is the way that I really I like recommend that. that everybody do it. <laughs> so, all right. Well, we're going to do a close out. Thank you so much, Tova. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sally. Yeah. All right. So um, thanks so much also to Michael and Alex. Do get ready for our show next week because Ian Fisher will be our host. And he will be discussing the Villanova supplemental questions, as well as answering listener questions with Shannon Vasconcelos, our regular guest. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. And you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you want to search for a particular show topic, you can go to our blog page at blog.getintocollege.com. We have some pretty great shows in the archives, including our March 21st show, in which we interviewed Melissa Korn, the author of Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admission Scandal. And last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. So please check us out. 
Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.